every American citizen must have an equal right to vote. The administration of elections is primarily a state and local responsibility. Whether you voted for the very first time or waited in line for a very long time, by the way, we have to fix that. Welcome to High Turnout Wide Margins. This is Brianna Lennon. I am the county clerk for Boone County, and with me is my co host, Eric Fay, Director of Elections in St. Louis County, Missouri. And today we have a special guest from Michigan. Tina Barton is joining us from Rochester Hills. We thank you for coming on the show, and we're really looking forward to talking with you about how 2020 went and about what challenges you faced and kind of the structure of elections administration in Michigan. But first, we always ask, how did you end up in the field of elections administration? I would say definitely it wasn't something that I intended to do. Uh, wasn't something I ever set out to be like, oh, elections are something I really want to work in. I never had worked at the polls or anything along those lines, but I had worked in government since I was 18. So I started working at the county level in IT and was a production control analyst there. Then I went and worked at a township. I was a level one assessor. I was the treasurer's assistant. I was an ordinance officer. And at the time I was an ordinance officer, we had a new clerk get elected. And she said, I want you to come on and be my deputy clerk. And I said, well, let's be clear. I sit in the same room that the clerk's office employees sit in, but when it's election time, I actually try to get out of here <laughs> because it's so busy. And I said, so I don't really know anything about the elections aspect. I mean, obviously I'd worked in multiple departments in the township and she said, we're smart women, Tina, we'll figure it out. And so we figured it out and I've been figuring it out for the last 15 years. And once I got into it, you know, it seemed like this very complex animal and honestly it still is. But I think when it gets in your heart, in your blood, whatever, in your mind, and you, you get ingrained in it, it gets ingrained in you, you just cannot shake it. There are a lot of things that we do in our office that have nothing to do with elections. I mean, I handle birth and death records in my office, you know, I oversee city council, I do the liquor licensing, uh, so lots of licensing aspects, passports, our youth council. So I have a, a broad spectrum of things that I oversee in our office, but I would say that elections definitely is the one vein that we have here. That's my passion. Just because I find it really interesting to learn about what other states have in terms of elections infrastructure, like we have a city clerk, but none of them actually touch elections. They're all, you know, are the ones that are doing the candidate filing and things like that. But when it comes to checking the signatures to get on the ballot, we do that. Actually running the election, we do that. So it's a very administrative type of role, but you are very hands-on. So can you kind of explain the structure of how elections happen within Michigan? Absolutely. So Michigan is one of, my understanding, eight states in the country that we administer elections at the local level. And uh, we have the, the largest population, I believe, of any state where we do that. So we have 83 county clerks here, but we have over 1,600 election officials in the state of Michigan. Uh, we're very decentralized the way that we operate. So we have a secretary of state who is our chief 
election official for our state. And then we have under the Secretary of State, a Bureau of Elections, which handles like a lot of our training manuals, oversees the uh, qualified voter file database, the maintenance on that, those types of things. Then we have our county clerks who are very engaged in ordering our ballots, overseeing canvassing of our elections as well as um, the campaign finance aspect of it is handled at the county level. And then they also um, get involved with training of election inspectors for our communities with lower populations so that they don't have to do that. And then at the local level, clerks like like me, we are responsible for, we hire all of our inspectors, we you know set up all the precincts, we issue all the ballots, we're doing all the mailings, the applications, the signature checking, and then on election day, we're the ones uh, counting the ballots. So we are pretty much for the administration of the election, it is pretty much falls into the lap of the local clerks to administer that part of the election, which to me is the real beef of it all. I think that's fascinating. You know, one thing I mentioned in the introductory podcast, from time to time, I observe elections in other countries. And whenever I talk about how elections are structured in the United States, other people always say, that's crazy. How do you keep anything straight? And just within the United States, so in Missouri, where it's all at the county level, there aren't any city clerks doing stuff like you just mentioned, as Brianna described, it kind of sounds crazy to us. In your opinion, do, do you think the division of responsibilities works well in Michigan? So I think it's a blessing and a curse, right? I think that there are aspects of it that provide extra layers of security, extra layers of accountability and checks and balances in place where you have the state and the county and the local all operating at different levels, but really all working together for the end product. So for instance, with us at the local level running the elections and administering them, but the county board of canvassers actually canvassing the election, to me, it adds that extra layer of, yes, we're the ones running the election, but the county programmed it. Each of these layers where they're doing one thing, we're checking it, or we're doing one thing and they're checking it, that it adds that, again, extra layer of security to it. It also adds challenge to it. When you talk about 1,600 election officials in one state, not everything is going to be done exactly the same way, right? So the law is there to give guidance on what has to be done but how you get from A to B to C to D, there's some latitude there that is given to the local election officials, um, maybe to create your own training materials, things like that, that one clerk may not do something exactly the same way that another clerk does. It, it allows creativity, but it also can be a detriment if you are not having uniformity in something as critical as elections where people are expecting to go from one place to another place and for it to be the same. So I think that's a really good segue into talking about how 2020 was so challenging as things are changing at the state level and policies are changing at the state level and just general voter behavior is moving towards more mailing in, more early voting. How did you find the transition went to adding in more mail ballots and handling, you know, the unexpected from 2020? Well, one of the things that we were looking at here in Michigan is in uh, November of 2018, we had a ballot proposal that passed that brought constitutional changes in Michigan, Proposal 18-3. And in that proposal were things like same-day registration, no reason absentee voting. And so we saw early on that the voter habits were going to change and expand just from that proposal that had passed in 2018. 
So in, in Michigan, you have city clerks, township clerks, and the city clerks, we usually have an election every single year because city elections typically are held in odd years where the township clerks, their elections all take place in even years. A lot of the city clerks got to get our feet wet a tad in 2019 because we had small city elections. And even though they were small elections, they allowed us to look at how would we implement this process say, of same day registration and ballot issuance. So in August of 2019, Rochester Hills held their first election since that passage of the proposal. And with that election, even though it was not a high turnout election, over 81% of the ballots cast were done by absentee ballot. That was insane to have a percentage that high. We've never seen anything like that before. So it was a real wake up call to us that people not only voted for this option, but they intend to use this option. And so we started looking at things all the way back in 2019 of saying, how do we prepare for a large change in a large issuance of absentee ballots in our communities that we're not used to seeing. We were already putting together spreadsheets and meeting with legislators and, and talking about, we see change coming, how are we going to react to that? That being said, you could not fully prepare for what you were going to experience in a pandemic. First of all, we had to make changes in Michigan for the August election, those changes had to be made in May. So we had to make determinations as early as May where we were going to move our precincts. So a lot of that had to take place. We had to have, you know, take it to our councils, pass resolutions, and, and reestablish locations of temporary precinct changes that were gonna be in place for August and for November. So that was done in May. We also um, had to send out, even though we had sent out earlier in the year, an are you available message, you know, a poll to all of our workers. We have about 400 workers that we typically hire for a presidential election. We sent out surveys, are you available? We had to resend that survey in May to all of them in preparation of the August election because we knew that the vast majority of our staff in an election were going to be high risk individuals. The average age of an election worker in Michigan is around 74. And initially we had some people say yes, that by the end of June started saying no. So we saw where we had initially hired a lot of people and then they started backing out. And so there was a recruitment effort that had to go forward that wasn't something, even though we were anticipating high turn, you know, high absentee ballots, we weren't thinking that we were gonna have to hire uh, you know, 300 people that we had never hired and hope the 100 people that said yes, stayed on for experience. <laughs> We had to look at equipment. What kind of equipment do you have to sustain the type of volume that you're looking at? Do you need more high-speed tabulators? Uh, do you need more scanners in your office um, for scanning in the ballot and the applications when they come in to check the signatures? Um, do we, we had to purchase more of those. Do you need to hire more people in your office? And we did. We had to hire more part-time people to come in and help us with the process because there was no way that my staff can continue to do all of the things. Like I said, we're still doing burials because we oversee cemeteries. We're still issuing birth certificates. We're still you know, handling city council meetings. So while we're still doing all of the duties that we're expected to do, responding to FOIAs within five business days, could we handle the volume that, that we were expecting? And so we had to bring on five part-time temporary people uh, to come in and help us with the load of doing nothing but checking in mail, uh, helping us um, sort and organize ballots. We had to purchase more ways to store the ballots. So we had um, tables in our back vault where they were always stored by precinct number. Well, we had to um, purchase racks that went 
up so we could have more storage. So we're purchasing more um, uh, tubs that we color coded uh, for precincts so that we could better organize ourselves. And it was just a, a massive overhaul of everything that we thought we had down to a science. Looking at it again and saying, how can we be flexible and looking at what life has brought us to bring about change. And that's something I think is really hard for election administrators uh, because we are rule followers and we're law followers. And 2020 pretty much handed us the rule book and said, rewrite it. We had to then also in our state account for, again, the same day registration. So in looking at that, not only did I have to have all my team members busy handling election day processes, but I needed another segment, another small team in another area of the building that could do same day registration. Because the way that the proposal was written is that, and the way that the process was implemented is that the same day registration doesn't take um, place at the polls here. It takes place at city hall. And so because our polling books are not uh, connected to the internet, so they had to come register to vote here at City Hall. At that time, they could be issued an absentee ballot um, that's in, or they can take a receipt and go to the precinct and vote. So I had to uh, assign more team members to do another task that we hadn't normally done before. So it was a lot of logistics, um, a lot of uh, scenario planning, and um, looking at really uh, uh, just a, a project management is what it became as we have an, a project here and how are we going to manage it with staffing, with, with equipment, and with uh, innovative solutions. And that's what we had to do. I've got to ask you, you were implementing this, buying that, extra this, more of that. Where did the money come from to do all that? So some of that was coming from CARES Act funding that our county received that allowed us to seek reimbursement. Uh, some of the things that we were looking at, like when it came to the recruitment phase of I needed to find more workers and hire more people, um, I used some of the grant money from CTCL to put out ads in the paper that normally, you know, I mean, ads in a paper are not cheap and to put out digital ads and, and things like that. And so I used some of that CTCL grant money to do that. But a lot of the CARES Act funding and the fact that we have um, a city council here that recognized that this wasn't something that we could have planned you know, in the budget the year prior. And when we brought um, issues to them that we needed funded, they were willing to provide us what we needed to get the job done. You're a lucky person. I do recognize that, honestly, I do. And I try to be very generous with our resources of, of what we have. If there's anything that I can somehow in some way share with another clerk, whether it be a process or training materials, or if they can borrow something, anything along those lines. I think a lot of election officials are that way. We never look at each other as individual silos. That's what's so fantastic about this profession is we look at this of how can I help you? What do I have that, that can be a resource to you or that can help you do something better? I mean, even just me being on here today is a reflection of a friendship with Brianna, you know, and, and how you develop those friendships as election officials across the entire country. And even though we don't do things exactly the same, overall, the general premise of what we do is very, very similar. And uh, it helps us work through things of, hey, I never thought about that before. I think I'm going to try that. You've got staff that are implementing those changes, too, and that you're working with. When things are done the same way for so long and you're trying to adapt to this whole new system and everything else, how did you bring them on? How did you incorporate 
their advice did you, is it something that you really relied on other clerks to, to talk about or was it something within your own shop? I would say uh, it was a hybrid, you know, it was kind of all of that. It was us sitting down in a conference room saying, let's look at this scenario and let's talk about what we're already doing, but worst case scenario, what are we looking at? And how are we going to handle that? Okay, this is the amount that we have of this supply. In order to reach this goal or in order to do this effectively, what tools do you think that we are going to need in order to be able to do that? And sitting down and, and picking their brains about even just on election night when our workers come back and the chair and the co-chair come back and they have to go through an audit process right then. How are we going to socially distance them? Sitting down with our facilities team of, can we get our chairs? Can we put X's on the floor, putting them six feet apart? So looking at all of the challenges that we know what we do well, let's look at what, what has come new into the picture and how do we think we best accommodate that into what we're already doing or do we need to change some of these processes in order to meet that need. And so it was a lot of it sitting down with our teams, just I have long whiteboards in the conference room of where we were just taking notes, writing it all down. And as we would um, get something purchased, get it approved or get it put in a process put in place, we would check it off and delegating those responsibilities. The, the clerk and the deputy clerk cannot do it all. We just cannot. And so it's bringing your entire team in, recognizing what their talents are and what they're good at and assigning everyone tasks and holding them accountable to, I need you to have this done by this particular date. We're gonna meet again on this day to talk about this and, and how we're going to move forward. It was also finding, and I think it's so important as a clerk or election official to have your core group of people that you go to with situations and that you are confident in them, in their abilities and in their knowledge and sitting down and saying, this is what I can already see is going to be a problem, or this is going to be a challenge, or this is going to be an opportunity. Do you all see it the same way? And if so, how are you going to approach it? And you may approach it the same way and you may not. Communities are all very different um, with over 1600 election officials, even just within our own county. We have some very rural communities and we have some that are right in the, the center of high populated areas. So it's, it's not always a one solution fits all. And that's why you need to surround yourself with good people that you trust and that you know are gonna bring good ideas to the table and also are going to be critical of your ideas to make you think more and and think harder about what you're doing. You know, I know Brianna and I probably want to ask you about some post-election stuff, but one thing I personally am very much interested in is how you balance running the election and running in an election at the same time. I know this is something Brianna has to do, but I'm appointed or hired. I don't ever foresee my name being on a ballot anywhere, but I can't imagine running the election and running in the election how do you balance those two things? And I know a lot of election administrators across the country have to do the same thing. So typically I would not have to do that. Most city clerks in the state of, of Michigan are appointed. So in my position as a city clerk of Rochester Hills, I'm appointed by council. The township clerks though in our state are all elected. I was on the ballot this time, but it's because I ran for county clerk. So that's why I was on the ballot. I would say that it was a unique time because not only were we obviously on the ballot running an election, but campaigning was not the same it's always been. 
So you couldn't go to big fundraisers, you couldn't hold, you know, big parties, things like that. So it actually kind of helped the situation, I think, as a candidate, most of everything what you were doing and your meetings were all taking place virtually. So you didn't have to drive to all these different cities and townships and, and do presentations. You could sit down at your computer and do multiple presentations all at one time. So for me, it, it was a conversation with my team of we need to schedule as much as possible before October 1st. I told them by October 15th, I will be checking out on you as a candidate and it becomes your responsibility to finish running my campaign because my first responsibility is as a clerk. And so I think again, once again, it's who you surround yourself with and making sure you have a good team um, so that you can do both, but also making sure that you are not shying away from the duties and, and the oath that you've taken to do the job that you're doing. Definitely a balancing act. <laughs> and you had a unique experience because wasn't your daughter also on the ballot? <laughs> So my daughter was on the ballot in August in the primary, and so she ran for a township clerk uh, position, and she lost by about 500 votes. So we were both on the ballot in August, which was a pretty cool experience to have us both on the ballot at the same time running for clerk positions. That's amazing. You passed on all of the elections love to the next generation. She, uh, I'm not sure she'll, she'll run again at this point. You know, you know, it's like one of those things. It's like after you give birth, you're not really sure you're going to do it again, but you do. And so I'm not sure that she will or, or she will not. She's in school looking at different areas, but she really loves the social work aspect. And so I'm not sure what avenue she'll take, but she does love the elections aspect of it. And she's, she follows it all very closely and has, you know, certain senators and state reps that she follows on Twitter and she wants to know what they're doing and watches their speeches. So it, it's in her blood. I just don't know how it's going to manifest itself. That's very cool. Well, I wanted to ask about post-election stuff. Michigan was at the forefront of a lot of the controversy post-election. What effect did that have on on you and your job and, and what you were doing post-election? So I think for all of us as, a, as election officials, we take our job so seriously and take our oath of office so seriously that it's always, that it's disheartening, it's discouraging to have your work looked at in a way that's considered to be fraudulent or that intentional things might've been done to the election process. The election officials I know, and I know a lot across, not only just the state of Michigan, but across the country, we are very dedicated to fair, accessible, free elections. And for me, it was, I would almost use the word, felt personally devastating. It was very emotional to know that we had put so much time, so much effort, that we really had put our health and safety on the line up until the, the two days prior to the election, my deputy and I stood out in the parking lot um, with car after car of individuals pulling up who had either already tested positive for COVID, so we knew they were COVID positive, or had been exposed to somebody who was positive and we're pretty sure they probably were too, so they couldn't go to the precinct. We had put our own health on the line and those two weeks leading up to the election, I looked at the timesheet that I turned in and my deputy turned in. And for those two weeks, we each had 80 hours of overtime that we had completely, I would say, spent ourselves mentally, emotionally, 
physically. And it was almost shocking to me to see some of the reaction that this was not a fair election or that it was a fraudulent election. I stand by our election results. I have taken part in a hand recount here in Michigan since the election and the votes came in with very minimal change, which is always going to happen when you have a hand count against a machine count. I also uh, was on the vote review panel for the Antrim audit, Antrim County audit that took place here in Michigan, which was a lot of the controversy. And we saw, again, very little change in, in the votes. And again, nothing that we would see outside of a normal hand against machine count. And then uh, was down in Georgia. I went down to Georgia at the, the middle of November and helped with their audit process. And again, just time after time of each of those locations that I visited, seeing the numbers come in so close to what the machines had said that the numbers were and that the winners were still the winners and the losers were still the losers. It just gave me so much more confidence in the process and all these different locations. And I wish that every American citizen would take the opportunity to work an election. You know, we have this where everybody has to do jury duty, right? I, I think if we had something implemented like that, that um, there would be a lot less confusion there would be a lot less um, misinformation and disinformation. If everybody would just once take an opportunity to serve as a poll inspector, to work in an absentee counting boardroom, that you would have a true understanding of the way the process works, that something that might seem nefarious to you, you would have a much better understanding of that if you had actually engaged yourself physically in the process. And that is one of the things that, you know, there are a few things it's become clear to me since that election that we, we need to have education. Education, not only our constituents, um, but education of our legislators and the media uh, as to how things actually do work. Uh, we don't try to do that after the fact when we're in damage control mode. And, and transparency, I think transparency is essential as we look at this past election, that we have to be intentional about giving access to the public and to the media when we're doing things like logic and accuracy testing, when we're holding audits, things like that, that we need to be giving that access to them. And I think we have to take action as we are moving forward um, towards 2024, because we are now. You know, that's what we're looking for. That's that's the end game now is 2024. Okay, what do we do uh, till we get to that point? And we have to be, uh, we have to take action. We have to look back and assess everything that was the good, the bad, and the ugly of 2020. And where do we need laws to change? How do we build the relationships that we need to build? And who are the individuals that we need to be bringing to the table so it helps in these types of situations that you aren't trying to reach out to someone once something has already gone wrong? And when you have those established relationships, it's a lot harder to speak out against or take action against someone. And so I think we have to be really intentional about building a community, if you will, so when you're looking back at working that many hours and all of the time and effort and sweat equity and everything that you threw into the election and see what has transpired since then, is there something or, or many things that you look back and say, oh, I wish I'd had the time to do this? Have you, have you had the time to do that yet? 
I would say somewhat, you know, it's, it's been a lot over the last eight, eight weeks, you know, um, here in Michigan, even I've personally received death threats and it's been a challenge, had even had an attack from the RNC chair. And so emotionally, it's been a lot to process over the last eight weeks, honestly, and to look at all that and to look at all of our processes. Yeah. I mean, my mind has been turning literally from the day after, which election day for me was about a 36 hour day. I got there at 5 a.m. on Tuesday morning and I left Wednesday afternoon around 2.30 in the afternoon. I wanted to give everybody some time to step away from it and, and really kind of just, I don't know if heal is the word to use, but maybe it is to just kind of have some restoration of, of their energy and having this time off during the holiday season to rest and, and relax and to come back refreshed. And let's look at it now with new eyes. Because if we had done this, you know, obviously there are some notes I've taken since election day of uh, need to focus on this, this and this. But you're doing that and, and you're still tired, you're still emotional about it. And so you're, you're looking at it through a different set of eyes than you are four weeks later to come back and say, okay, let's all sit down now and let's walk through election day. And so that is something that we're going to be doing with our team over the next two weeks is to, to walk through every process and kind of dissect it and say, Again, what worked well, what did not work well. And so having that in place, having um, plans in place too, where we did have um, a few, we were servicing three to 400 people a day at our counter. Our counter is a very small area. We wouldn't, we wouldn't normally, we would maybe have a half dozen people before lunch on a normal day, right? So we're not set up logistically to handle three to 400 people. We also don't have that many computers or that many staff members who are even authorized to get into our qualified voter files. So I think we have to rethink those things about, you know, the staffing that has the access to a qualified voter file system, our voter database, what's, what's reasonable, what's also safe, um, you know, to allow that many users on there and how do you accommodate that many voters? And so those are just the types of things where we're going to be sitting down. We're going to walk step by step. I trust, trust me. We're going to go step by step through everything leading up all the way from May till probably into December. Like you said, it was an extremely emotionally draining experience and it didn't end election day, it's really continued on. So can you speak a little bit to that and, and what effect it's had on your staff? It's just, you know, so difficult to watch people being run through the ringer for doing their job. Right. And I would say that we've, we've had many of those discussions. Obviously, I, I mentioned we had a situation here in our city where a uh, file was sent twice and it wasn't recognized initially that the file had sent two times. And so it populated um, a field for particular for precincts, their totals two times. And so it wasn't caught until the next day that we had that happen. And as soon as it was fixed, um, as soon as we saw it, it was fixed immediately and corrected. And that's what the canvassing time period is for um, that we have after the election is to look at situations like that. Initially, it didn't look like the file had sent. We didn't think it was there. They didn't think they had received it on their end. It was sent again. And lo and behold, the first time it's sent, it should have populated as an absentee. It populated as a, a precinct the first time. And that's where we had the discrepancy. But again, it was fixed. And we thought that this, you know, had all been taken care of. And then when you have 
the challenge come forward from the that the RNC chair makes um, a statement about it. Uh, my staff was again, we were just stunned. We were devastated, you know, that we had worked so hard that we'd put so much time and effort into it. And for someone to use a situation to push an agenda and use us as, a, as one of the examples to do that, we honestly were just sitting back and not really sure how to respond to this. Do we just not respond to it or do we speak out and stand for truth? And that's what I chose to do. And so at, during that time period, you know, we're, we're talking about the astonishment um, we're talking about, again, the things you beat yourself up, right? You look at every single step and say, what could I have done better? How could we have done this? How could we have kept that from happening? And so you're constantly second guessing yourself because you do want to be better and you do want to be the best. And so again, I think it just became this um, physical and mental and emotional exhaustion where people were hurt. We were sad. We were also still proud. We knew what we had done and we knew that we had done it right. And so we still felt this pride in everything that we had done this entire year. And we weren't really sure how to present that to our, our constituents and, and to get them to understand exactly what had happened, that we did things right. Everything was done legally. Everything was corrected the way it should be corrected. And so it also came at a troubleshooting matter. And um, uh, a communications issue of a worst case scenario. And, you know, Brianna, I've sat with you on tabletop uh, discussions uh, uh, held by the DHS and CISA and the Brennan Center. And I put a call, phone call into the Brennan Center and I said, we never had this on a tabletop discussion, okay? <laughs> this needs to be added to the tabletop discussion. And we looked at all of that and just, I think it, not only were we exhausted, but it, I think it has invigorated me even more that um, at first it kind of beat me down a little bit of where I'm like, I just kept like rehashing everything. And then I'm like, Tina, you got to turn this around and we have to look at this situation of how do we make this better as we move forward. So I allowed myself about a week to sulk and, and to, you know, to be tired and, and to feel like I needed to look it all over and, and was doing so, be, like I said, beating myself up. And then after about a week, I'm like, you got to snap out of this. We have work to do there are things that we still need to accomplish. There's education that still needs to happen and you have to stand up and defend this. And so I, I feel so passionate right now and so on fire, so burdened, if you will, with this, that honest to God, I like feel like I, I would love so much right now to just sit in a room full of all of us, election officials from across the country, and just start writing on a board somewhere of all these ideas that we have and all these ways to, to help counter all of these issues as we go forward and to work on this all together. And I look forward to a time when we can all do that because there's so much to offer. There's so many things that we need to address, so many changes that need to take place and so uh, many ways that we need to educate the public and we all have to do this together. And I think that it's really important that as election officials now, we put that all, you know, we look at those lessons learned and we move forward. Absolutely. Yep, that's how I just felt after the election is like, there but for the grace of God go I. I mean, this could be any of us and you've encapsulated it really well. So with that, I want to thank everybody for tuning in to another episode of High Turnout Wide Margins. A big thank you to Tina Barton for joining us. She's ready to go. Are you? 
please uh, tune in on our exciting next episode.